Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I'm your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number 19 for the week of October 18th, 2020. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my explanations of various health disorders and medical conditions. My goal is to provide you, the listener, with new insights and awareness of how our bodies function, how medical professionals work to identify health problems, and how one may cultivate a lifestyle of practice that can lead to prevention and reduce health problems. In the United States, October is designated as National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. This program began in October 1985 as a partnership between the American Cancer Society and a pharmaceutical company called Imperial Chemical Industries, which is now part of AstraZeneca Pharmaceutical Company. Shortly after that, a woman named Charlotte Haley, whose grandmother, sister, and daughter all battled breast cancer, she began distributing peach-colored ribbons to raise attention to the lack of funding for breast cancer research. And then, in the fall of 1991, in New York City, the Susan B. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation provided pink ribbons to all the participants in their fundraising race. And from that point on, the pink ribbon and October has become history. This presentation is not meant to be a fully extensive and comprehensive review of breast cancer, but rather a general framework from which to have a better understanding of common medical terms and language that's used when discussing breast cancer. Currently, the average risk of breast cancer for a woman in the United States is about 13%, which is roughly about one out of eight women. So the positive side of that statement is that seven out of eight women in the United States will never experience breast cancer. Breast cancer is the second greatest cause of death to women in the United States just behind lung cancer. It's the leading cause of premature mortality of women in the United States, costing an average of about 19 years of life lost. Breast cancer mortality is declining, thankfully, to advances in early detection and treatment. Breast cancer among men in the United States accounts for approximately 1% of all breast cancers. And while that sounds like a small percentage, the actual numbers turn out to be about 2,000 cases of male breast cancer in the United States diagnosed every year. Approximately 400 men here in this country die from breast cancer annually. So let me start with the anatomy. Uh, We're mammals, and so men and women have mammary glands. 
The human breast lies on top of the pectoralis major and a portion of minor pectoralis muscle. The breast is composed of milk glands and milk ducts and fatty tissue and fibrous tissue, which helps to provide some structural support. The breast is divided into several lobes, which are separated by fibrous connective tissue we call septa. The lobes are subdivided further into lobules, which consist of connective tissue for structural support, and embedded within that are your milk glands. The milk or lactiferous glands are arranged in clusters around the lactiferous ducts in a radial fashion, like the spokes of a wheel uh, on a car or bicycle. Within each lobule, the lactiferous ducts unite to form a single excretory duct that comes from each lobe. So within each breast, there's approximately 15 to 20 excretory ducts which converge toward the nipple in a radial fashion and terminate in a small opening on the surface of the nipple. Some risk factors that affect breast cancer are under our control and some are not. The things that we cannot control, of course, is your gender, being a man or a woman. You can also not control for time. As we get older, our risk increases. And you cannot control for your genetic uh, makeup. And we think about the cancer genes, the BRCA1 or BRCA2. Your family history, you cannot uh, control or work against. Sometimes you can't control the exposure length of time uh, that you have had estrogen in your body. Uh, Women that start their menstrual cycles early, such as before age 11, or if they have a late menopause, such as after age 55, they're probably going to have a little more risk. Having your first pregnancy after age 30 or not having any full-term pregnancies seems to also contribute, again, because there's more estrogen exposure over a lifetime. Never breastfeeding and interrupting estrogen production can also contribute to that. And then, of course, if you've been treated for some other medical condition and received radiation therapy, that can put you at a slight risk. The controllable factors uh, for breast cancer would be uh, correcting a sedentary lifestyle, a person that doesn't move about and doesn't get a lot of physical exercise. Obesity naturally has been identified, as well as tobacco use or heavy alcohol use. For some women, postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy can also increase her risk.
So what are the clinical features of breast cancer? What do doctors or even a person themselves see? A breast cancer cannot completely be identified to the naked eye or even to palpation, but generally there are some distinguishing features uh, in a normal breast that we can discern. One of the features is the appearance of the skin. If there is a dimpling or thickened skin texture of the breast, kind of like an orange, what the French called pas d'orange, that is a concern. Another physical feature would be actually palpating uh, a lump or there's pain uh, located in one uh, or more regions of a breast. A change in the appearance of the nipple uh, where it might look puckered or retracted and is unable to be erect or has irregular contour would be a concern. Another concern would be an unusual nipple discharge other than milk uh, or if there's actually a bloody discharge. And then, of course, are subtle changes in the contour of the breasts. They don't appear symmetric or have some other type of uh, appearance that's different than in the past. Now, the screening guidelines for breast cancer uh, vary. And it really depends on the medical society or even the insurance companies that make recommendations of screenings. There's the American Cancer Society. There's the United States Preventative Service Task Force recommendations. There's the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and several other medical societies. But generally, the American College of Cancer makes the recommendation that a woman with an average risk of breast cancer receives her first mammogram around age 40, uh, but no later than 45. Women who might have high risk factors, as mentioned earlier, should get screening mammograms done as early uh, as age 35 or five years earlier than the first degree relative who was first diagnosed. So if you're a woman whose mother identified breast cancer at age 42, and she unfortunately passed shortly thereafter, you wouldn't want to necessarily wait until you're age 40 to get your first screening mammogram. It should be done earlier. As far as the imaging techniques that are used, uh, many people are familiar with the mammogram and the ultrasound. And a lot of people are concerned about exactly how much radiation exposure do they get from a standard mammogram. Well, the quantity of radiation exposure is measured in what is called millisieverts. And the typical amount of ambient radiation exposure for the average American is about 0.3 millisieverts a year, so not even a whole millisievert. A standard two-dimension chest x-ray delivers about 
0.1 millisieverts, which is about a 10-day duration of exposure outdoors. A standard two-view screening mammogram delivers about 0.4 millisieverts, which is equivalent roughly to about six to seven weeks of outdoor radiation. A standard two-dimensional mammogram will take images in two dimensions. We call them craniocaudal, which is head to toe, and mediolateral oblique, which is from the midline out to the lateral portion of the breast. A 3D mammogram, which is known as breast tomosynthesis, does deliver slightly more radiation than a standard mammogram because it takes more images to create the three-dimensional image. But by combining a 3D mammogram and a 2D mammogram, you reduce the need for additional imaging and it slightly increases the sensitivity for detecting a true breast cancer. So for women who have slightly dense breast tissue, the 3D mammogram is preferable. The breast ultrasound is a non-invasive, non-radiation procedure of transmitting sound waves into the underlying tissue, and this can sometimes help to distinguish a solid from a cystic or fluid-containing pocket. Alone, it's not very useful for doing breast cancer detection, but it is good for follow-up of any suspicious mammogram or a need to direct a needle for biopsy. Breast MRI scans are not considered first-hand or first-line screening tools. They're best reserved for those who have high-risk features or they need to be screened because one of their breasts already has breast cancer and you want to look at the other side, or they can be used to assess the extent of disease from a breast cancer that's in situ or has become invasive and you want to get further identification. There are also what are called molecular biomarkers. And biomarkers are any substance uh, made from uh, the body or a tumor cell in response to an abnormal presence of tumor cells. The popular breast cancer biomarkers are known as the estrogen receptor, the progesterone receptor, and the human epidermal growth factor receptor 2. We call that HER2, H-E-R-2. Testing for estrogen receptor and progesterone receptors is done on breast tissue to find out if a cancer is likely to be successfully treated with hormonal therapy. Breast cancers can have one, both, or none of these receptors. And tumors that express the estrogen receptor, their so-called positive, are estrogen-dependent, whereas those that do not express the receptor are considered estrogen 
independent. Two-thirds of invasive breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive. Approximately 65% of cancers that are estrogen receptor positive are also progesterone receptor positive. And tumors that are estrogen receptor positive and or progesterone receptor positive generally respond to anti-hormone therapy. Now, anti-hormone therapy is actually the use of hormones that are antagonistic to estrogen or progesterone, meaning they impede their function. Examples of hormonal therapy used for metastatic breast cancer includes a class of medicines called aromatase inhibitors, and that's known commonly by the brand names of Arimidex, Aramacin, or Thimara. And then there's the more popular one called Tamoxifen, and another one called Phaslodex. These are all hormone antagonistic treatments. The human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, or HER2, uh, breast cancers are produced by cells in the breast in varying amounts, and an abnormally high concentration of HER2 can induce some breast cells to multiply in number and grow in abnormal fashion. Approximately 20% of all breast cancers overexpress this HER2 protein. An overexpression of the HER2 protein will upregulate that cellular growth I mentioned to uncontrollable levels. And having an HER2 positive status generally is a little uh, stronger or worse prognosis. Testing for the HER2 receptors on a breast biopsy helps determine if anti-HER2 treatment could be helpful. Examples of some of these medications include Herceptin, Pergetta, Ticurb, and another one called Cadcycla. Now, in addition to getting a tissue sampling or an image, there are serum biomarkers that can be used to help identify cancers. CEA, CA153, or CA27.29 are all common serum markers that help oncologists and doctors determine whether this is a primary cancer they've never seen before, it can be used in terms of following for surveillance for recurrent or metastatic disease. Breast tumors can be what we call benign or they can be malignant. Benign means they're not going to kill you, but they are abnormal growths. Some women can get what's called fat necrosis, which is a result of an injury to the breast 
such as a sharp blow or a poke to the breast tissue. And underneath in that fatty tissue layer, the breast becomes inflamed and produces a mass or lump, uh, which can be indistinguishable from a true breast cancer, except by microscopic exam of, from a biopsy or possibly an ultrasound. Again, these masses do not become cancerous, and there's no evidence that breast cancers are produced by injury to the breast. Another common benign breast tumor is called a fibroadenoma. The fibroadenoma is actually more common in young women between the ages of 15 to 30. And they're characterized as feeling like a firm or rubbery consistency. They're usually not painful, and they move freely within the breast substance. Fibroadenomas, as I said, are always benign. They never become cancerous, but they can become large and deforming. And so sometimes removal is advised or maybe preferred by that person. Malignant breast cancers are of generally four different varieties. There are ductal carcinoma in situ, which are abnormal cells confined to the ductal epithelial cells, the lining cells of the ducts, and they haven't spread into any surrounding breast tissue. There's also invasive ductal carcinoma, which can break outside of the duct and into the uh, neighboring breast tissues. A third type is called inflammatory breast cancer, and the fourth malignant breast cancer is known as metastatic. Now, not to be too in-depth, but generally, in order to know how to treat a breast cancer or any other cancer, physicians do a process called staging. And staging of a tumor helps to identify and guide and direct treatment. In the case of breast cancer, sometimes we do what is called neoadjuvant chemotherapy, meaning preoperatively we treat a person with medications in uh, areas where it may be locally advanced but not metastatic. And the purpose is to decrease the size of the tumor uh, or what we call the tumor bulk or burden and the local lymph nodes. The staging uh, process for cancer is known as TNM, T as in Tom, N as in new, and M as in many. The T represents four different categories of severity. It tells us about how large the tumor is, usually measured in millimeters, and what are the biomarkers. So a tumor can have a TX, meaning it's undetermined, or it could have a T0, meaning that it's not of any significant size, all the way up to a T4, which would imply a large tumor probably larger than 20 millimeters and 
possibly multiple. The N represents the nodes, and so the breast is supplied by rich lymph nodes, and the N value of staging tells us what type of involvement the lymph nodes might have had. And this is typically graded from zero to three. So you could have a breast cancer in early discovery that has absolutely no lymph node involvement. Or it could have multiple and several lymph nodes, which would be an N3. And lastly, the M in the tumor staging is known as the metastasis. And it's generally either a zero or a one. And it tells us if the primary cancer has spread to other parts of the body or not. So if the breast cancer is only in the breast, that would be an M0. Uh, if it has metastasized to another tissue area in the body, that would be an M1. And then, of course, there are the five pathological stages of breast cancer. You can have a zero uh, stage, which would be non-invasive ductal carcinoma in situ, meaning it's isolated and limited just to the cells in the duct. They could rise all the way up to a level four, which would be very aggressive and invasive cancer uh, having no respect for tissue boundaries. I'd like to end uh, this conversation with remission, or what's known as the response. Remission, or response, is typically partial or complete. A partial remission is defined clinically when you've had at least a 50% reduction in tumor size and, and involvement. Whereas complete remission is usually a determination made after five years of treatment and no evidence of any tumor cells by our screening tools with biomarkers and imaging techniques and such. There are other imaging systems used uh, called the PET-CT scan, um, the PET-CT scan is sometimes used in this process after treatment. Uh, it's known as the fluorodeoxyglucose positron emission tomography, PET, positron emission tomography. And this kind of image tool is used to detect metabolically active malignant lesions. You're basically given a little infusion of a glucose-type substance and where there is highly metabolic and active cellular uh, tissue, it will sop up that glucose that you're uh, giving and highlight it so we can identify hidden locations. So the take-home points that I want to make from this conversation is that, number one, it's important to try and identify if you have a risk factor for breast cancer and try to reduce the ones that are within your control. 
maintain good weekly exercise, good sleep, a diet that doesn't provoke or irritate your body, and limit your substance use of uh, tobacco, alcohol, and such. A second point about this conversation is that the 3D mammogram, known as the tomosynthesis, is slightly better at detecting breast cancers. And actually, it takes about a thousand women screened to identify one true breast cancer. But that one life is worth it. There are several processes and steps that go into making a correct stage and treatment plan for every breast cancer. And no two plans and treatments are exactly alike. And lastly, all cancer patients want a complete remission and become a full-life survivor. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. I do emphasize that I am not serving as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Lauren and Natalie, who are part of my podcast team, and they help immensely in making this production. I encourage everyone listening, again, if you haven't done so already, please get your annual flu shot. As you can see, the, there's an upsurge of the coronavirus and the overlap between coronavirus and the annual flu are indistinguishable. Finally, I would again want to repeat my message that I've been doing for several months about voting. Uh, please vote. It's uh, preferable if you can, to go in person. If you've already voted, thank you very much. Uh, and if you haven't voted and you don't plan on going, please mail in your ballot this week. As of the time of this recording, there's currently 8.1 million Americans who have been infected by coronavirus. And there's 215,000 Americans who have died this year. 16,959 just in the state of California. There's currently 3,029 new cases of coronavirus per day in California. And we still have two months remaining to this calendar year of 2020. America is a very sick and dysfunctional healthcare system. Your vote, added to millions of other people's, will help determine the future course of healthcare in our country. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, 
May you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart. Thank you.